Hi there, welcome to the Second Adolescence Podcast. Here, we talk about all things queer healing and second adolescence. So what is second adolescence, you might ask? Second adolescence is a sort of developmental life stage queer people navigate in our post-coming-out adult years after growing up within an anti-queer world. For many, second adolescence is about healing the wounds of our younger queer selves, gaining the experiences they missed out on, and unlocking what it means for us to exist as our most free and true selves. I am your host, Adam James Cohen, psychotherapist and human who went through his own second adolescence. And gosh, this episode is a good one. I had a really great conversation recently with John Carl Lewis, who is a spiritual director whose work now really focuses on helping queer people reintegrate their own relationship to both spirituality and their sexuality. And we hear on this episode his own personal story of what it was like growing up as a queer Black man of faith and how he navigated discovering his identity, coming out and coming out amidst the AIDS pandemic of the 80s. And he shares how his second adolescence has really involved traveling through those missed developmental tasks from his first adolescence while integrating in his spiritual and sexual parts of the self into one. It was a truly fascinating story, and I'm really excited to invite you into it. And as with each episode of this podcast, where we have a new queer person coming on to share their story, I really want to invite you to listen with open curiosity and know that each of our stories are unique. You might hear people share parts of their experience that differ from yours, as well as parts that absolutely speak to what you went through or are currently going through. And I hope that all this happens and that we can continue to grow in community with one another and continue expanding our awareness of what life and queerness and healing can be for folks. At the end of this episode, feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and resources highlighted in the episode. And any Instagrammers out there can head on over to Instagram and follow the show at, at secondadolescencepod. We'd love to hear from you. All right, enough for me for now. Let's dive into today's conversation. Thanks for being here. Hi, my name is John Carl Lewis. I am a gay black man who identifies as queer to be in solidarity with the rest of the rainbow. I am a spiritual director in private practice, and I am writing a book on sexual ethics for queer Christian men. Ooh, well, okay. I have so many questions about your book and your work. And on that note, like, what is a spiritual director? A spiritual director is a companion who walks alongside you as you walk along your spiritual journey. What that looks like in practical terms is we meet for an hour and we talk about where you are experiencing the transcendent in your life. If you call that God, that's something we can work with. If you call it something else, it's something we can work with. But it's all about helping you see where the transcendent is intersecting with the mundane and integrating that more fully into your life. Gosh, that sounds like such important work. Yeah, I'm thinking about what that work must be like with queer folks around their own spirituality and spiritual journey, because I know for many, they can have had an experience growing up in a context where religion and faith perhaps complicated their relationship to that, their identity. Do you see this show up with queer people you work with? I have seen it with a couple of folks. I've spoken with people who do not consider themselves Christian, but because of their Christian upbringing or living in a society which is 
more influenced than we'd like to think by particular forms of Christianity, there is often a need to untangle what that Christian piece means so that they can either move on to something else or move into the fullness of a deeper Christian faith or no faith. It's really where the person needs and wants to go. But I do think it is useful to acknowledge that Christianity has wounded all of us in very many ways. And my approach is to face that head on and say, hey, let's talk about how to get past that, through that, around that. I mean, yeah, it's so important. I'm curious to know more about how you got into this work. But first, actually, I want to pull back a bit and to back up into you and your story. So yeah, where did your life start? Where did your story begin? My life started in a small town in the New Jersey Pine Barrens, very rural. And I lived in a town where my family had been upstanding Negroes in the community for about three or four generations. So we grew up in an atmosphere where there was a lot of respect. Our family was very loving, a very church-going, straight-laced family. And we were also expected to live up to certain standards of conduct and appearance, Mm. which my brother and I managed to do quite nicely. But uh, What, What did that mean? It didn't leave a whole lot of room for expression as a young gay person. Yeah. Although everybody knew that I was gay, it turns out. Mm. Uh, well, I never showed any interest in chasing young women or dating or anything like that. So people just basically mm. over time got the sense that, well, he's not that kind of boy. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a sense of what that was like for them to have this observation of, oh, he's not that quote unquote kind of boy. What do you know about what they were thinking as they were observing this potential queerness within you? We had two things going on. There was my family and then there was the wider spiritual community. And Mm. I will say first that the wider spiritual community turned out to be pretty okay with my being gay and coming out of the closet later. The Mm. folks It disturbed the most were my parents because, of course, they had the greatest stake in this news, aside from me, Mm. and had expectations and goals. And I came out in 1987, which was the height of the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. And they were concerned for my safety. They were concerned that I not get beat up. They were concerned that I not die alone and alcoholic and friendless as some of their Mm. associates had. Mm. So it was based in a lot of fear and a little bit of dashed expectations. Yeah, like where our, our world was at and particularly our culture at the time, it was just swimming in fear, something in misinformation about what it means to be a queer person. And for you, I'm curious about what was your own path to discovering your queerness and what was that like to learn about yourself? It was easier than it was for a lot of people, I think. I Mm. knew that I was different at four. I knew I had Mm. an obsession with other boys shirtless by the time I finished kindergarten. Mm. And I I just knew I was different in terms of what I was supposed to be interested in 
And yet I kept it quiet. It didn't really start to cause me pain until I was age 13. And my best friends started to chase young women. And I felt alone and abandoned and lonely and didn't really see a place for me to, as we will talk about, go through a normal adolescence. Mm. I knew that I was deprived of that. Mm. I had studied the Greek myths when I was in elementary school. And so on some level, I had a sense that bonded male friendship was a good thing Mm. and was possible in some way. Mm. But in college, I found a person to bond with. He was straight, but we had an intimate relationship, which felt to me like love. Uh, I feel like he loved me and I loved him, but we were not going to hold hands and run off into the sunset as a gay couple. (laughs) Gosh, I have so many questions about you and your story. Uh, A couple of things I'm hearing is, first off, it sounds like you had a pretty similar experience to a lot of queer folks in that when they look back at the beginning indications of being queer, it often can start with this feeling of differentness, this unconscious sense that I'm different in some way than the people around me, particularly the peers of my same gender. And then it's later, often in adolescence, when that unconscious feeling of differentness shifts into a more conscious understanding of how you are different than the norm you're exposed to from the onset of our sexual development. That really shifts us into more of that space of understanding and knowing, ooh, okay, yeah, I get how these feelings are different than what I'm seeing my peers around me feeling. And gosh, that moment can be a super tricky time for young queer people. And you mentioned... 13-year-old you having his friends go off and pursue interest in girls and you were feeling really, you know, one, that's not what you wanted to do, but also feeling left behind and left out. What was going on for you at 13? Well, my big crush at the time was a guy I'll call Bruce. He started to hang out. We used to have sleepovers and stuff like that and spend time together. And I remember he bought me a Jaws t-shirt as a present when the movie came out. So that will date me. (laughs) And we were really good friends, just hung out, wandered around the woods, talked about nothing. I was never sexual with anybody as a child up through college. So there was none of that going on. But I remember when he got interested in Katie in the eighth grade, and I was crushed because I realized that my affection for him and his affection for me were different and had changed in some significant way. Yeah, I think there are so many of us who had those complicated relationships with friends of our same gender that felt so close and so important. So much so that when that friend pursued other things or dating people of another gender, it felt so much like the pangs of heartbreak and jealousy and all at a level that often our younger selves, they couldn't really understand. I absolutely had that experience in my own life in middle school. And so I can really relate with this part of your story. So how did this progress for you in your first adolescence? What happened next? Okay. um, What my first adolescence was like, I was a very studious and devout boy. And so I thought I was saving myself for the woman I would eventually have feelings for. I ran into an evangelical circle 
uh, radio station that I listened to all the time. And I believed that God could change anything about me that God didn't like. And I thought God didn't like me being gay. So I prayed and prayed and prayed. I prayed through high school and prayed that God would take away my desires for men and he would take away my sin of uh, masturbation. Neither happened. And so as high school went on, I was fine thinking God is going to fix this. When I got into college, I was thinking, you know, God, this is taking a long time. Are you going to do something about this or not? So I started counseling with one of the um, missionaries who led our youth group. Mm-hmm. And I would meet with him once a week for an hour, and we would sit, and he would ask me how my prayer life was and how I was handling my temptations. I was handling my temptations pretty well because I had mm-hmm. no idea there was a big old cruising area in the basement of the English department. <laughs> I had no idea that I was surrounded by closeted gay men who wouldn't come anywhere near me because I was a raving Jesus freak. So I so I, I spent college shooting myself in the foot in retrospect. Wow. Yeah. And then I came under the conviction that God wasn't going to change me, uh, but I needed to live a celibate life, which meant that I started mm. telling people I was gay and celibate. And mm. I thought this would endear me to people, but it really didn't. It made them rather suspicious because obviously they knew more about gay people than I did. And uh Although there are celibate gays, that's not the norm. And it's not healthy for most gay people, I feel. Yeah, and I can imagine the important question is, what is driving the call for that celibacy for that queer person? Is it from a place of shame where consciously or enough, shame is intercepting the person's openness to exploring their sexual selves? Or is this speaking to asexuality and the person's experiencing less of sexual energy and desire naturally? Yeah, what do you think? I sort of am inclined to agree with you that the motivation behind that celibacy is all important. I have learned more about the asexual community, the the whole range of options from not not having sexual attraction to another person to demisexual only having attraction if there's deep friendship and all the gradations in between. But I also think there are gay people with a sex drive who have chosen to be celibate for a time. And that makes sense for them, given their situation. But it was not good for me as a young man trying to make connection, as one naturally does for the most part in one's early 20s, 30s, etc. Yeah, and I keep thinking back to when you shared about younger you who was praying day in and day out to have these feelings within him be changed or go away. And then they didn't. Gosh, what was was that like for younger you? Well, I had probably my first of several spiritual crises then. Mm. And it was more of a, you know, I've done everything that I'm supposed to do and God hasn't delivered. What is the deal? And I had to just figure out what sort of relationship I had with God all over again. I mean, I was reading the Bible every night I had since I was five. You know, I was conversing in the scriptures. I went to church every Sunday. 
participated in high school and college Christian youth groups. And I guess that culminated in my coming out. And that was when I decided that God must not want this to change. He must have something special to do with my life. That doesn't involve getting married to a woman and lying to her about my feelings that weren't there. And that precipitated, to be quite honest, a deep depressive episode. I became suicidal after that and didn't have the means to do it because I wasn't sure whether suicide was an unforgivable sin or not. Mm. So Mm. I couldn't really rush into that, thank God. Mm-hmm. But it was just, uh, it was torture. I just uh, went to bed weeping every night. Yeah. Gosh, I can only imagine how hard that time was. Gosh, what is it, what is it like in, in this moment to look back and see younger you at that moment? It's, uh, if I hadn't come through, it would be crushing, which, you know, which pushes me to be mindful of all of those queer kids who are in that situation today. There is such support and love outside of those narrowly interpreted Christian circles. But by the nature of the Christian circles that oppress gay people, they don't know those resources exist. And if they do, they're taught to mistrust. So I'm obsessed with how to get to those people before they kill themselves, before they marry someone of another gender in order to look appropriate. I guess I have a big savior complex around that. I mean, yeah, I I can understand that completely because you know the pain of what it felt like to be there. So the thought of young people going through that today, of course, you want to do whatever you can to show them another way. Yeah, I absolutely get that and resonate with that personally. And yeah, so I guess on that note, like, are there resources that you point people towards who are in that space? Well, the Trevor Project is amazing. And I believe the Trevor Project partnered with a religious organization to produce a range of materials specifically for queer people coming out of a conservative Christian context. Human Rights Campaign has faith-based resources on its website that help people get comfortable with being gay and talking about talking to other religious people, not just Christians, about how they can be faithful queer people within their traditions. And there is an app called Believer, without the last E, which is a dating app for Christian Queerful. It just launched last year. And one more resource, Scarletine has amazing resources for all young people about sexuality. And it's very queer friendly and very nuanced. And they've produced some good materials for how to not only be a queer person, a Mm. trans person, but also to be a good ally and a friend to someone who's queer or trans. Mm, Awesome. Thanks for highlighting all those resources. I'll be sure to link to each of them in the show notes for folks. I have so many things I want to talk with you about. Let's go back into your story. What got you through, you know, that really deep crisis point in your life to help you move forward? Like what happened next? It's interesting because I have blocked out a lot of that time. I think it was being caught between my fear 
of suicide and my mm. fear yeah. of indulging in homosexuality that <laughs> kept me alive, but kept me in misery. I started finally, I forget what the first book I read that was an affirming take on homosexuality from the Christian tradition. It may have been John Boswell's Homosexuality, Social Tolerance and Christianity. And that really opened my eyes. I got mm. really excited. I read the whole thing, which is like, what, 500 pages or something like that. And all the footnotes, which are in about six different languages. I, I didn't read right, all those right. languages. Uh, and I actually traveled to Yale and met with John Boswell wow. and talked to him about his work. And he was maybe the first of several mentors that I thought I would have around to look up to and be schooled by and mm -hmm. formed by before he died. I wonder what life would have been like with his mentorship. Yeah. But just having all that wisdom, all the stuff that didn't mm -hmm. fit into his book, I'm still grieving that loss. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, because it sounds like finding his work at the time you did was so pivotal for you. And then getting the chance to meet with him. Yeah. I can imagine grieving what could have been with him, having him as a resource and just as you were going through your own story. And then it sounds like he was offering such important work for the collective yeah, at the time. Like, yeah. holy smokes. I hope people take a look back at his work. I mean, there's wonderful work being done now, but there was so much work done before and during the height of the AIDS pandemic that has been lost just because there hasn't been an unbroken chain of mentors to recommend these books. They think they have nothing to say, but they do. Lesbians like Carter Hayward writing in the 80s about mm. the power of God as erotic love and Michael Bernard Kelly, who died not too long ago, writing about the responsibility queer people have to remake the world in a way that honors the erotic and heals society through conscious loving. Gosh, I am eager to find these pieces of work and and yeah, this idea of the erotic and historically what ex external factors and culture has done to intercept queer people's ability to understand and explore the erotic. Like, there is so much important healing work in all this. And I'm thankful that there's been a revival of that work. There are a number of sex and relationship and intimacy coaches out there who are helping gay men reconnect the spiritual with the sexual and the erotic, mostly outside of the Christian tradition, but mm -hmm. I'm finding a lot of ex-seminarians and clergy kids among the people doing that work. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Cool. What important need, I think, for so many of us, regardless of the context we grew up within, so much of our first adolescence is marked by internalizing these certain beliefs about queerness, about sexuality, about faith, about everything. And, and so much of second adolescence is really about uncovering these beliefs and looking at which ones need to be unlearned or tweaked or experienced in a different way. And yeah, it really sounds like those folks are out there doing that work. And was this part of your experience too, looking at the beliefs that were internalized in your first adolescence and exploring what needed to be done with those in your second adolescence? Yes, that's exactly what happened. I was mindful because I had 
been somewhat immersed in the ancient Greek mythological tradition that one could not properly mature into adulthood without mentorship and without rituals and without guidance. And so I quickly found my way to the men's movement, which was going on in the 80s and the 90s, where grown men were attempting to initiate each other into a manhood that would be worthy of the women who are going through the feminist movement. Mm. And of course, there was a subset of those men who were gay, trying to figure out what it meant to be authentically gay and male, Mm. as opposed to whatever society said we were, that we weren't men or that we're too sexual. The gay branches of that were very healing for me and very affirming of me as a desirable person. I realized laying in bed several nights ago that one of the tasks of adolescence might be to experience oneself as an object of desire, or at least a potential Mm -hmm. object of desire. Because I perceived all the men around me were straight, I never felt desired or desirable until I started spending time in these circles of men that were both deeply spiritual, not necessarily Christian, and deeply erotic. Yeah. I mean, first off, I think that idea that came to you the other night feels so true for so many of us. I know in my own personal story, I had to learn as I started really pursuing dating for the first time in my mid-20s, I had to learn how to see myself as someone who was sexual and could be seen as sexual by another person, particularly by another man. And yeah, I think so many of us queer people in first adolescence, we shut off our sexual and romantic selves and Some of us did this consciously, and for some of us, this happens unconsciously. But because we were immersed in an anti-queer world around us, it was a threat to let those parts of us get time to breathe. So in an effort for protection, we desexualize ourselves or experience sexual desire in private and then have a ton of shame become internalized for these feelings. I mean, there are so many ways in which our younger queer selves, healthy development of a sexual identity was was intercepted. And as you're pointing out, it then becomes an integral task of second adolescence to learn how to invite in our romantic and sexual selves, letting them join the party, giving them space, not only to grow, but to become more healthfully integrated into our self-concept. There's a wonderful book called Beyond Shame by Matthias Roberts. He's a therapist who is writing about gay men's reactions to the shame we've inherited. And it interested me that there were several approaches to shame. One was to repress it. The other is to jump into it unreservedly. (laughs) And the other is to just sort of go on autopilot and maybe be a little bit, you know, one way one day, one way the other. being satisfied. But I feel that his work is important because like the work of Brene Brown, Mm -hmm. naming the shame is one of the first steps to healing. Naming particular behaviors as attempts to deal with that shame allows us to see them in a light that is generous and healing. 
Yeah, what you're speaking to is what I found to be the essence of second adolescence. You know, for queer folks, so much of our stories, like shame was at the beginning, shame guided the middle, and shame is what has to be reckoned with at the end. Second adolescence, yes, it's about gaining the experiences we missed out on in first adolescence, but way more than this, truly at the core of second adolescence is helping our younger selves heal from that chronic shame they endured for so long, you know, like that day in, day out onslaught of direct and indirect messaging about our wrongness. Like this is the work. And like you're saying, learning how to identify and name shame and see how it shows up in all of its complicated ways. And then from this self-compassionate place, interact with the shame constantly finding ways to engage with our younger selves around the shame that they came to internalize and helping our younger selves let go of it. Yeah, it's powerful and important work. And it sounds like you've done a lot of this work with shame in your own story. What has that been like for you working with shame? Well, that makes me mindful of what strategies I've used to get through that second adolescence. It's interesting mm. because I've always thought of it as a delayed adolescence, mm. but I think second adolescence makes more sense because mm -hmm. we did have an adolescence. I just didn't fulfill the tasks that I was supposed to during that adolescence. And so this really is a second adolescence. It can't be like the first. And I think that for me, looking for groups that could nurture me has helped me get through the second adolescence without Mm. needing to resort to too mm. many self-destructive behaviors. I joined a leather tribe in Boston when I was in my mid to late 20s. Mm. And one of the nice things about being part of a leather tribe is at first, the leather community was the hardest hit by HIV and AIDS. But because they were the first and the hardest hit, they managed to pivot their sexual practices and their language around sexuality. And it became one of the mm. safest communities to be in just because they had a language around sexuality that other communities didn't. Mm. It was very rare to go into a leather bar and see someone drunk high off their ass mm. running around presenting themselves mm. to whoever would take advantage of them that night. Consent was a thing then. And permission had to be given for sexual acts. And the people who didn't play by the rules were called out. I remember mm. being interested in one man and my leather buddy said, no, you, we won't let you go home with him. Oh. He's a bad top. He'll hurt you. Yeah. And, you know, how many lives yeah. would be saved if we had those networks of people in place to watch out for each other? My heart breaks for the young queer folk who think that their destiny is to go out and get drunk or high enough so they can lower their shame threshold enough to go home with anybody, but not really be sober enough to connect and get the intimacy that they really want. Absolutely. That's just it for so many of us. You know, underneath our shame is simply a deep desire to connect, to be seen and known and held. And yeah, that can absolutely be a driver underneath those behaviors. Totally. 
So what else ended up being helpful for you to move through the shame, for you to move through your own second adolescence? I have always been committed to a journey of self-improvement. I don't know where that comes from. I'm sure I inherit that from my family. I'm sure some of it is coming from the desire to be the best little boy in the world, (laughs) but it's helped me. I've read a lot of self-help books, tried to find a spiritual path that works for me. And basically, I would say being on a spiritual path has really helped me avoid some of the dangers of that journey. I have been partnered for 26 years, married for five and a half to the same guy, strangely enough. (laughs) And that has been a steadying force in my life. I met him when I was 29. And I often talk about second hour lessons. I think I still have a second 30s to go through. I've often wondered what it would have been like to be single in my 30s, which is another formative period. But I am very thankful for my husband and, you know, how I've been nurtured and protected in that relationship. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I want to I hear about this relationship. But first, I'm actually curious, like, wait, what was your relationship history like before meeting your husband? Relationships would work out for about a year and then mm-hmm. they, they either went three months or they went a year. For the shorter ones, the other guy would get bored. For the longer ones, I would get bored. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't the right guy to go the distance with. But I spent a lot of time searching for sex and searching mm-hmm. for connection. It was my obsession. And my obsession was to get a boyfriend, not necessarily have lots of sex. It was this tremendous thirst for intimacy all through my 20s. Yeah, what's that like in this moment, looking back at that point in your story? So It makes me sad. It makes me angry, which is an emotion I'm only learning to deal with now. It's like, and the anger is why, why couldn't something have been done? Totally, yep. While you're speaking to this, this sadness and anger, these whys, those are all part of the grief that is an important part of second adolescence to to let be here. You know, for so many of us queer people, we can look back and point to countless points in our story where we wish things could have been different, where we're pained to see what was and we're pained to see what we wish could have been. This is grief. And this is often what I see as an imperative part to growing through second adolescence and integral to queer healing. You know, the grieving for and with our younger selves for what was and what never could be. Gosh, I mean, for me, I've done a ton of work around my own grief for my younger selves, and I can still easily access that sorrow that I hold for them when I look back and and I see younger me, when I see him at various ages and, and what I wish could have been true for him instead of what was, you know, at three, at 12, at 17, at 23. And yeah, it's super painful to be in that grief. So, you know, I translate that to what can we do now to break this cycle so that all of these people who still need to go through a second adolescence, and I'm not even sure that the queer folks going through their first adolescence right now 
are able to meet all the tasks of a first adolescence, given the fact that they see blatant homophobia and transphobia in the media every single day of their lives. They're not out of the woods. They've got more information, but they're not out of the woods yet. And I'm looking, one of the reasons I was so excited about your book project is that we need therapists and people in helping professions telling us or suggesting to us different ways of moving through this in a healthy way. Because the unhealthy ways are all out there and people will try whatever they can to get where they need to be. And a book like yours is going to be a lifeline. Yeah. And for, for folks listening, just to give some context, uh, I spent the past couple of years writing about the experience of second adolescence using my own story as a framework to talk about this experience, which has led to then wanting to start this podcast to join in conversation with other queer people who have journeyed through their own experience of second adolescence. Because though there are cornerstones that are universal to the experience, so much is different for each person. Yeah. So again, I'm just excited to have you here talking about all of this. And I see how even today, the world that a lot of our queer youth in our culture, even here in, I live in San Francisco, like even here, one of the most progressive and queer supportive cities, I still work with adolescents who are queer and are experiencing homophobia at school or in their homes. And so this idea of second yes. adolescence, mm -hmm. yeah, it might be a part of the queer story for a bit longer until we have a culture that lets queer youth experience first adolescence free from shame and able to have all the experiences they want, the ones, you know, that they see their cis straight peers getting to experience. And I hope we get there. And yeah, I think you and I, we have this shared life mission of wanting to support the greater work of queer healing. And so that's why I'm so, so grateful to get time with you because it's just yeah, such an honor to meet with other queer people who, you know, we're all doing it in different ways, but it's all part of the same mission. And so I feel really appreciative of you, your work and, and yeah, in this conversation. Before we go, I, I want to make sure that we get some time to hear about your book. You know, like, what are you writing? Tell us. What I'm writing right now is the working title is Sex and the Gay Christian. This will be a guide for queer folks to help them make healthy sexual decisions in light of their spiritual convictions, specifically their Christian faith, to help people develop a personal sexual ethic to live by so that they've got some principles helping them form relationships and engage in sexual encounters. And I would like to, at the end of that, suggest ways to integrate one's sexual life and one's spiritual life and how to build a community around yourself that um, allows you to flourish. Gosh, this sounds so important. How, how did you get to this point of knowing this is what you wanted this piece of work to be and to put this out in the world? I haven't found what I was looking for in terms of a guide to an ethical, spiritually informed sexual life. One of the first questions I asked when I entered the Episcopal Church mm. in 1990, mm. I asked the priest, you know, what are the rules for me as a gay Christian? And he didn't mm. have an answer for me. He basically said, become a part of the mm. community and you know, attend to your spiritual life and pray. 
Mm. And basically his assumption was that I would figure it all out, which I did. I, I think I would have liked a little bit more guidance. Mm. Yeah, I hope it's useful information. Yeah, absolutely. So then you're you're offering that to folks now. And I'm struck by similar, perhaps in both of our stories. Well, for me, I'll speak doing the work of second adolescence first in my own personal journey, then in the work I do with my clients in my practice, and then extending that outward into these conversations and the book I've written. And in many ways, I'm offering what I hoped I could have had access to and what I feel my younger selves could have so greatly benefited from. And and yeah, I wonder if that feels true for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And going back to second adolescence, we all carry within us our younger selves and and often the wounds of our younger selves. And so much about second adolescence is doing things to offer healing to those wounds of our younger selves. And, and part of that is creating pieces of work and offering something to other people that we wish we could have had. And yeah, it's just really cool and really special what you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And so if any of our listeners wanted to reach out to you after hearing this conversation or follow your work, like what's the best place they can come connect with you? The best place to connect with me right now is at my website, which is sexgaychristian.com. It's not the most streamlined website right now. It's going to experience a makeover, but you can find me there. And I encourage people to find me because I'd like to talk to them and hear their stories, both about how they've integrated their sexuality and their spirituality and the struggles they've had along the way. Well, John Carl Lewis, thank you so much for coming on yeah. today and sharing your story and sharing about your work. I am going to be thinking about this conversation for a while, and I just so appreciate you and so look forward to continuing to be in a relationship as we keep moving forward. Me too. Thank you. Well, thanks folks for joining us for this conversation. Feel free to head on over to secondadolescencepod.com for show notes and resources highlighted in today's episode. And you can connect further by following the show on Instagram at, at secondadolescencepod. If you're interested in being a future guest on the show and you want to come on and share about your own second adolescence, visit secondadolescencepod.com and you'll see how you can submit your interest there. I'd love to have you on. All right, that's it for me. Whether it's morning, afternoon, night, wherever we're finding you in your day, please go out there, keep doing things that would make younger you feel absolutely stoked. That's what it's about. Mm. All right, take good care. <laughs>